traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered, with his head covered, dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Well, our passage uh, now begins with a commendation from Paul. He praises uh, the Corinthian church. Um, He praises them and commends them that they remember him in everything and they maintain the traditions even as he delivered them, those traditions to the Corinthian people. So Paul, um, they they remember Paul. They keep him in mind. They they pray for him and Paul uh, commends them. Thank you for praying. Thank you for remembering me and maintaining the traditions. That is, that Paul has been the conduit through which they receive the apostolic teaching. In Acts chapter 2, 42, one of the distinctives of the early church was that they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And Paul is saying, I commend you for keeping these traditions, these apostolic teachings, that you are keeping the truth that has once and for all been delivered to the saints. Paul has been the conduit of that of that tradition, of that apostolic tradition. And Paul commends them for remembering such things. And then we get to verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Now let me just pause for a moment and state that everybody has a head. Well, I know we all have physical heads, right? If you don't have a physical head, well, I got some anointing oil here, so maybe we should pray. We all have a physical head. Um, But what Paul is saying that we also have a metaphorical head, and I just want to highlight that this verse, verse 3, is the guiding principle of the passage. If we get this verse we will be in much, much better shape as we go along. In other words, everybody submits to somebody. I could probably sum it up that way. Everybody submits to somebody. Paul is now saying that I want you to understand that the head of every man is... I'm sorry, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Everybody has a head. Everybody submits to somebody. I know we don't like that word submission, but as we go along, I think it will be brought up how that is to be understood. Now, this word head has received massive amounts of scholarly research. Massive. What does it mean? You'd think, oh my goodness, really? It's just the word head. It has just, especially in recent years. I am not going to get into all of the gory details, but let me just say that we can categorize how this has been understood in at least three different ways. First of all, 
one use of this word head can refer to that which is prominent or preeminent. The second way that this can be used is that which has authority. And the third way it is used has to do with source or origin. For instance, the source of a river, you might say that is the head of the river. And how we understand this word will be, will reflect how we understand this passage of text. I don't think it can mean source. There are many today who would put forth that source is, that, um, that source is the, the proper understanding. I'm utterly unconvinced. And one of the reasons I am utterly unconvinced by this is because we would be saying then that the, the source of Christ is God. And that is just blatant heresy. That would be saying that Christ is a created being, that God, the Father, is the source or the origin of Christ. And we would deny that. The Bible would deny that, that Christ is the eternal Son of God. He has always existed. He is not a creation or an emanation, not even the finest creation of the Father. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So this idea of being source or the head, the origin, utterly falls flat. And same with the idea of authority. The only real way to understand, I think the the biblical way and the most consistent way of understanding this word head is that having to do with prominence or preeminence. We need to remember, we need to, when we get into this passage text, everybody has an authority. Everybody submits to somebody. And we see that. Now, when we say that everybody submits to somebody, here's what we are not saying. We are not saying that people are unequal in essence. That one person is of greater value or greater worth than another. We, are, we maintain that, well, this is not an issue of value or worth. Let, let me... Let me describe this by looking at the, the Godhead, by looking at God in Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, which one is more God? That's a trick question. Who is more God? Who is of greater value or greater worth? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or Holy Spirit. They are equal in essence. They are co-equal, co-eternal. The Father is not greater in essence than the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not greater in essence than the Son. They are equal in essence, but make no mistake, they are different in function. It is not, as I said, an issue of value or worth. Christ willingly submits to his Father, Jesus himself said, I and the Father are one. That is, we are equal. He also said, the Father is greater than I, and I only do what I see the Father do, and I only say what I see the Father saying. Willing submission. Jesus Jesus himself exemplifies this idea of Willing submission. Equal in essence. The Father is not greater. I'm one with the Father. But I do what he asked me to do. Willing submission. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Equal in essence, different in function. Perhaps, and I won't go into great detail on this, but it may be one of the greatest places where this is highlighted in the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And here we see the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working to bring about our salvation. Folks, the Holy Spirit did not die on the cross for your sins. Jesus did. 
And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we see that the Father planned from eternity those whom he would redeem. In time, Christ purchased their pardon, and the Holy Spirit secures that purchase until the until through eternity. Some people have said, sought, bought, brought. God sought, Christ bought, the Holy Spirit brought them into the kingdom. Different, equal in essence, different in function. The reason I went there is because um, if that is how the Godhead is constituted, if that is how God is, we should not be surprised then to see this same order in the things that God creates. Namely, the family and the church. If that is how God is, equal in essence, different in function, why would we be surprised if God's creation reflects that very image? There is an order in the Godhead, there is an order in the family, and there is an order in the church. This is where Paul is going. Like I said, if we get this guiding principle, if we understand this, then the rest of the text will fall into place. So hopefully, I have made that clear. There is... Everybody submits to somebody by saying that somebody submits to another is not saying that one person is greater value or of... Uh, more important or more necessary or anything like that. We hold firmly to what we would call a complementarian view, and that is equal in essence, different in function. So with that, I hope firmly established, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife um, is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Then Paul goes on, and he begins to balance, he, he begins, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. In other words, men, do not pray or prophesy with a covered head. Why? That seems kind of, I mean, really why? Paul's reasoning here is that what a man places or removes from his physical head either honors or dishonors his metaphorical head, Christ. All right. So why? Why does Paul say this? What's going on here? Well, I hope be clear on this. A man in ancient Rome, we see numerous writings and numerous artistic depictions of pagan priests and even emperors who would pull their robe or their toga up over their head in order to pray to their pagan deities. This would be the manner in which men, priests, emperors, husbands would venerate their their pagan deities. To pray or prophesy then in such a manner that as copying pagan worship in the corporate assembly would dishonor Christ who is your metaphorical head. In other words, men, when you pray and prophesy, do not dishonor Christ who died for your sins. Everything we do as in our church service should honor Christ. And if you emulate or mirror pagan worship, you are dishonoring the one to whom you should submit and give glory and honor to. To treat Christ as an addition to the pantheon of gods that Rome celebrated or just some other deceased man worthy of veneration is to dishonor Christ. Men, when you pray, when you participate in corporate public worship, do so in a manner that brings glory and honor to your metaphorical head. Glorify Christ. That's the general idea of what's going on here. Men, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Women, 
are called to not pray or prophesy with their head uncovered. So it is no less shameful for a woman to participate in corporate worship with her physical head uncovered. These actions would bring dishonor to her metaphorical head, her husband. Are you with me on that? Did I confuse? Maybe it's a little more clear. Women, it is dishonorable to your husband, that is your metaphorical head, to pray with your physical head uncovered. Really? Why? I'm glad you asked. Paul is writing in a day and age where head coverings would have been considered a sign of modesty. And there is some debate over what kind of head covering would have been a shawl. That's possible. Some might even say it was long hair that was tied up in a bun on their head. I think either one works. I'm going to I lean towards a shawl. It's neither here nor there. That's just in my research. But a woman of respect would cover her head when she went out in public. Like I said, a shawl or wearing her hair in a bun. An uncovered woman in public signaled that she was available. A covered woman signaled that she should not be approached by a man without serious penalty to him. And we see some of, in some of the, in some ancient documents that men who approached an unavailable woman, they were severely um, chastised and punished for such an act. So, a covered woman with a shawl, this would not be a burqa or anything like that. It would have just been like a, a shawl or even, like I said, even long hair put up in a bun. This was a, a signal or it was a way of saying that um, she's a, uh, she'd be a woman of respect. A covered woman signaled that she should not be approached by a man without serious penalty. So in the corporate gathering, when we're gathered together, to pray or prophesy with an uncovered physical head would bring dishonor or shame to her metaphorical head, that is, her husband. She would be signaling that she's available. And the issue is not in her praying or prophesying or even in any of her participation in worship, but rather her insubordination and the dishonor that it would bring to her husband. So Paul is saying that a woman should pray with her head covered. Why? Because it is honorable. Again, how do we worship God decently and in order? Then Paul goes on and he says, he, he, he drills down a little bit deeper onto this and he says, oh, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, so cover your head when you pray or prophesy in the corporate worship. But if you're not going to do that, you might as well shave your head. But that's dishonorable. Let's unpack that. A shaved head or an uncovered head, uh, or an uncovered head is the same as a shaved head, and it was prostitutes and adulteresses who had shaved heads. So cover your head. That's what Paul is saying. The corporate gathering was a time for the women to be held in honor and a time for them to, to display honor. It was not a time to assert autonomy, but to submit to God's created order. So, women, pray or prophesy with your head uncovered. Or with your head covered. I do find it very significant that both men and women are active participants in public worship. This is revolutionary. Um, in Jewish temple worship, there was a court of the women and they were separated. And they did not participate. And so I think it's significant then that both men and women are active in corporate public worship. It appears that women had great freedom in the early church. Here we see them both praying and prophesying. Uh, we'll unpack what prophecy is as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But certainly prophecy includes encouraging the church. 
verbally encouraging the church. Now, some of you are probably looking forward to verse chapter 14, verses 34 and 35. You're saying, but wait a second, wait a second. Paul is very clear. Women keep silent in the church. If you've got a question, ask your husband at home. What about that? <clears throat> well, we'll talk about that on June 12th. So keep coming, keep coming back because all of this builds to, to what will happen when we get to, to that passage of text. But I, uh, I think we'll take that in the context of the including 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I find it significant that Paul begins his dis- discussion of orderly church worship um, with proper decorum, highlighting ladies, and he concludes also um, this section in the same vein. So he, s- he seems to bracket this entire thing um, by these two um, statements. So it does appear that women had great freedom in the ch- early church to pray and to prophesy. Let me state here that at the church on Randall Place, just to make things clear, I don't want to give any false flags out there, that the role, the office of elder and pastor is reserved for men, but beyond that there are many ways for women to participate as equals in our church. For instance, for about the past 20 years, Suzanne has led the music. And she has been a great blessing to the church. We have, it's not unheard of for women to read scripture, to share testimonies, to um, give reports on their missionary endeavors. And so we do see women participating, I believe, actively in the local assembly. It appears that according in scripture, there is one office that is restricted, and that is that of elder and pastor. But there is great freedom for women. Um, But Paul is just saying, do it in a way that honors your metaphorical head. Do it in a way that honors your husband. If you were single, do it in a way that would honor your father or the the head of your family. That's all they're saying. Don't do it in such a way that would bring dishonor not only to your family, but do it, in, but also it would bring dishonor to you and it would cause Christ, our Lord, to be dishonored as well. So, does that kind of make sense? Somewhat? All right, good. I hope. Now, Paul has just argued from culture, but now he's going to argue from the created order. In other words, he says this, he says, um, for a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made f- from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Paul now goes to the created order. In other words, spiritual headship, which is what we are talking about, spiritual headship has its source in creation, The point here is that it is not a social convention. It is not a creation of the patriarchy to hold women down. It is found in the created order. This is the way God made things in the beginning. He says, woman came from man. And Paul is clearly referring back to Genesis chapter 2-7. That is, um, that from the rib... Woman was formed. She came from man. Here's what we see from this man being, I guess, the firstborn. This goes back to the the whole idea of the firstborn in a family. The firstborn son had certain responsibilities and privileges that he would, were necessary to take care of the rest of the family. The firstborn was preeminent. 
He was not of greater value. He was not worth more. He was not maybe even a better manager. But by firstborn, he had certain rights and responsibilities. The garden and its inhabitants were Adam's responsibilities. I think maybe here, um, as we see that woman from man, Sawyer, I don't know if I included this in your notes, but click ahead to this. This is a very famous quote, and it comes from Matthew Henry, but I think it is appropriate here. Women were created from the rib of man to be beside him, not from his head to top him, nor from his feet to be trampled on by him, but from under his arm to be protected by him, near to his heart to be loved by him. Paul is just saying this is the order of creation. Adam, as the firstborn, has certain responsibilities and privileges and a certain preeminence. However, as such, he also, as we talked about, had greater responsibility. After all, who was the first one to eat the fruit of the garden that was forbidden? Eve. Both Eve and Adam ate the fruit. Who bears the blame? Adam. Adam is the one through whom the sinful nature, our sinful nature, is inherited. We sometimes talk about our Adamic nature, that is, our sinful nature. We never talk about our Eve nature. It is Adam who was the firstborn who had responsibility as the firstborn, as the head, as the spiritual head of the the human family. To obey God's word, he failed. And he was the one who bears the blame. In Adam, we fell. We have an, an Adamic nature, not an Eve nature. So Paul is saying, Spiritual headship has its source in creation. That's what we see from the very beginning. Woman for man. Then he says, man for, or woman for man. And here Paul is also going back um, to Genesis chapter 2. In other words, it was not good for man to be alone. So God creates Adam and says, okay, tend the garden. And then he says, it's not good for Adam for man to be alone. And then what does God do? He brings all the animals in front of Adam and he says, name them. And whatever name Adam gave them, that was their name. And Adam noticed that there was not a corresponding mate. All the animals had a corresponding mate, but he didn't. And it was not good for him to be alone. And so God provided a suitable helper. It was not good for him to be alone, so God made a helper. And before we get uptight about that word helper, it is no diminishing of the value of women to say they are helpers any more than it is devaluing of men to say he needed help. Adam needed help. But it's way more than that. First of all, God calls himself. God, that Hebrew word is eatser, and God himself says, I am an eatser. God takes that term on himself. He ascribes himself by that same term. So it is not a, de- a demeaning term as it has been made out in our culture. Like I said, let's not import our culture back into this ancient culture. In other words, the woman completes man and actually she completes creation. Once she's done, created, creation is now very good. So, Paul is saying in the created order, man comes first. As such, there is a spiritual headship that he has. There is a headship that he has. Also, woman was made for man to be his partner and she completes him and she completes creation and then Paul goes on so in other words this is the created order for man was not made from woman but woman from from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels and I'll be honest that is why a woman should have authority that word uh, a symbol of 
symbol is not in, in the original language. My best understanding here is basically that is why a woman should act responsibly in the matter which Paul is dealing with. And then he goes on and says, because of the angels, and I ask, well, what's that all about? I'm asking, what's that all about? I don't know. That's a tough one. Because of the angels. Again, massive amounts of material covered on this, and we won't get into the, uh, into the details on that, but I, I think from the, all the, the reading that I've done over the years on this, I think a couple things can be noted, and I'm going to hold this with an open hand. Because obviously Paul knew what he was talking about and the Corinthians knew what he was talking about, but 2,000 years later we're not quite certain what Paul was talking about. But here's what we do know. We do know that angels are observers of human behavior. We see this in Luke chapter 15.7 and Luke chapter 15.10 and in 1 Timothy 5.21. We also see that angels are present in human worship. Hebrews 12, 22, and 23, probably a few other places in Hebrews. Angels then are observers of human behavior and are present in human worship. And so I would agree with David Garland in his commentary who states this, I'm inclined to think that Paul assumes that the angels are present in worship as observers and that their presence necessitates paying even greater heed to conventions of modesty. In other words, act honorably. Angels are present. I'm willing to listen to other thoughts on that, but I think that that has biblical support and I think it fits the context of what Paul is saying. So, now having said all this, Paul goes on. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of a woman, and all things are from God. In other words, Paul recognizes the equality of the sexes. First of all, in salvation, Paul himself writes in Galatians 3.28, there is, in regards to salvation, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no female, there is no female, there is no slave, and there is no free, all of y'all. have access to Christ. Christ saves men, women, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian. It does not matter, poor or rich, educated, uneducated. In the Lord, salvation is offered to all. Paul recognizes this equality of the sexes in salvation. Women are saved by Christ. They are not saved in a different way, contra the LDS church. They are saved through Christ. They are not saved through their husband. They are saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ saves men and women. Both men and women have fallen. Both men and women have rebelled against a holy God and as such are condemned to eternal separation from God. We call that hell. Men and women need to have their sins atoned for covered by the blood of Christ who died as a substitute who stood in their place both in the place of men and women and the wrath of God was poured out upon God the Son who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And on the third day, because he was sinless, death could not hold him. And he rose again. And 40 days later, he ascended into heaven where he rules and reigns forever. He is the Lord of his church and his church is comprised of both male, female, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian. Paul recognizes the equality of the sexes in salvation. Paul recognizes the equality of the sexes in spiritual giftedness. We'll see this in chapter 12, verse 21. He says, if... You can't say because I'm not, he's using this body metaphor. And he says, 
well, you can't say because I'm not an I, I have no value to the body. Paul is saying everybody who all believers have value to the body of Christ. All of y'all. If you're a believer in Christ, you have equal worth in your participation in in the way in which the church functions. So, Paul recognizes the equality of sexes, both in salvation and in spiritual giftedness. So the statement that woman comes from man and that is expressed in headship is now counterbalanced by the fact that man has a source in woman. In other words, men, y'all got a mom. That would be a simple way of putting it. Man has his source in Woman, wives then are not to consider themselves autonomous and husbands are not to consider themselves independent and superior to their wives. Men and women are different, equal in, or are different and they complement one another and that is good. I, I, I think one of the most devastating things we see in our society today is to flatten the differences between men and women. God made us different. And we celebrate the differences. I'm glad that Simone is not like me. She doesn't look like me, praise God. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, we are different. I'm not better, nor is she. We are equal in essence, but we are different. I celebrate the differences. It is a sad state when we're trying to make flatten this thing that God has made so beautiful. Husbands, your wife is different from you. Celebrate it. Wives, your husband's different from you. Those are good things. They complement one another. I don't know where I would be if it weren't for my wife. I really don't. I don't know where this church would be. All right? We complement one another. We are vastly different. Praise God. Praise God. Men, we need women. Women need men, and the church needs them both. But there is an order. There is a created order. And there is a decorum that should be displayed when we gather. So, Paul has now said, listen, Here is the way that we honor one another as we gather together in corporate public worship. There are cultural things that we need to be aware of, but what I'm talking about culturally has its roots, has its foundation in the created order. And then Paul begins to wrap this up by saying, Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. So he begins with, first of all, Paul begins to pinpoint the issue. I I think um, verse 13 would be the, the, the... kind of the thesis state. This is the thrust of the whole argument. Something was going on in the... Corinthian church that prompted Paul to direct his points towards the women in the church. You might say, well, shouldn't he say the same thing to the men? Probably so, but that's not the question he's answering. Remember, this is an occasional letter. Paul is writing in response to a question being asked of him. He is not giving a great treatise on both men and women, he is answering a very specific question. There seemed to be some issue, we don't know what it was, that was perhaps prompting women to pray and prophesy in the public gathering with their head uncovered. And Paul is saying, it's not right to do so. It does not honor. It is not honorable. So judge for yourself. We don't know exactly what brought this about, many, probably the majority of biblical scholars would say there is some sort of women's liberation movement going on in the Corinthian church. I don't know if that's true because it just doesn't say so. Most 
sermons and commentaries you'll read will probably have that. I'm just not willing to go there because it doesn't say it. Uh, some have put forth the idea that perhaps the issue is is that in a home, a, a woman would let her hair down and she would not have it covered because she's at home. And then the church gathers. Where do they gather? In the home. And just things kind of got dropped by the wayside. And Paul is just saying, listen, let's get back to the way things... Listen, we're kind of getting a little bit lax here. Let's just remember um, the signals that we send. To me, that makes a lot of sense. But we don't know. But something is going on that prompts Paul to... that prompts the Corinthians to ask Paul a question about this issue, and so he's answering this issue. So he's pinpointing the issue, and he says, judge for yourselves. Paul's made his point, and the Corinthians now are to discern how are they to act when they gather together. Uh, It's a rhetorical question that demands a negative answer. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? He's already answered that. No. Then he goes on to nature, and he says... Doesn't nature itself teach you that if a man wears his long hair, it's a disgrace for him? So I think the idea here is what, in regards to nature, it's really regarding what society understands to be natural. Isn't it a disgrace for a man to wear his hair long? And now Paul, now Paul doesn't go into detail as to how long your hair can be. All right. There, I remember we were doing some evangelism on the Hollywood Boulevard. Gosh, it was a long time ago and uh, encountered one guy, and I was with another a friend of mine, and this this individual said, he, he was all under the hair, and he said, well, your hair's okay, and I don't know how long my hair was at the time, your hair's okay, but his hair is wrong, and so he's in sin, but you're, he was pointing to me, I, I guess I wasn't in sin that, that moment. By the way, when we moved up here, I had hair down to the middle of my back, so I, I don't know if that was long or not, but I don't think I was sinning yet on that. But I don't know why I got off on that. But Paul is saying this is what a society understands to be natural. In general, it was dishonorable for men to have long hair. Um, and perhaps this refers to elaborate hairstyles that would have conveyed um, uh, that would have conveyed something that the long hair and the braiding of men's hair would have been viewed as effeminate, and this would convey moral ambiguity and sexual perversion. Let's move to this this quote here. I just gave you one quote, but there's a zillion examples. And this comes from an ancient poet who says this. He says, "If a child is a boy, do not let." Locks grow on his head. Do not braid his crown or cross knots at the top of his head. Long hair is not fit for boys, but for voluptuous women. And so there was this idea that a man with braided hair or, uh, I don't know, manicured mane um, would have conveyed moral ambiguity and sexual perversion. If you look at many Roman statues, the men had short hair. And so in Paul's writing, short hair probably would have uh, conveyed masculinity. On the other hand, long hair for a woman would have been a sign of beauty and femininity. I think the point here is this. Men be men and women be women. Oh, man, we might get canceled on YouTube if I, if I say that. But there is a difference. Men should be men and women should be women. And this idea of androgyny or trying to, uh, a man trying to look like a woman, whatever those social conventions look like. In today's church, it, it may be a little bit different than it was in the days that Paul is writing. But men should look like men and women should look like women because we are different. Long hair would have been seen as effeminate on a man and long hair on a woman was a sign of her femininity and beauty. So in other words, look Men be men and women be women. Can we do that? I think that's really one of the the great destructions of our society. The whole transgender movement is an overturning of God's order. 
it is not just some guy who wants to look like a girl or some girl who wants to look like a guy or whatever. It is an overturning. That's the, that's the corruption. It is literally overturning God's good creation. It is going back to the garden and saying, God, you did it wrong. Let me fix it for you. This is a horrific thing in the sight of God. If you struggle with transgenderism, we would love to speak with you compassionately and lovingly about these feelings. And we would love to share with you how Christ, Christ, Christ made you good. You weren't created wrong. You were made right in the very beginning. And we would love to talk to you a little bit about that. But do not rebel against God by seeking to overturn what he made was good. Paul goes on and says, we have no other practice. In other words, if you're not convinced by Paul's reasoning, he concludes that this is the practice of the other churches. In other words, I'm not speaking just to you in Corinth. This isn't just for you. This is something that the entire church, corporate, holds to. All right, well, I did the best I could with a difficult passage of text. Um, It is a humbling text, but I'll conclude with this. First of all, God has made all things good. God made you good. We have sinned. That doesn't mean that our sinful desires are good. It just means that when God made creation, he made it good. We have sinned and things have been turned upside down. And, And because of that, it is good to confess our sins and call upon him and be saved and return from our sins and turn to Christ who will... Um, forgive us of our sins. Men, women, he made us different. And those differences are good. God saves both men and women equally through Christ. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. If you are not following Christ at please talk to myself, talk to one of the elders, talk to my wife. There are other women in this church who are godly women who would love to speak with you about what it means to follow Christ. God saves both men and women the same way. He saves us through the person of Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you this day that if you're not a follower of Christ, Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we would love to talk with you about what that means and what next steps look like in going forth in this new life. Pray with me, church. Lord, we are humbled by your word. And we thank you, Lord God, that you are good and that everything that flows from you is good. We have rebelled against you. That is sin and it is not good. But you have offered a good redeemer who redeems us and brings us back to you, our good God, our heavenly father. So I pray, gracious Lord, that you would help us. Help us to wrestle with this text. I'm sure, Lord God, in this room, not everybody holds firmly to what I've stated, I pray, gracious Lord, that you would make your word clear to us and guide us and lead us. And so, Father, be merciful to us this day. And I pray that as we worship you in public, corporately, that we would do so in a way that you are honored, that you are glorified, that you are seen for who you are. So, Lord, let everything we do, whether we eat or drink or sing songs or pray or prophesy, that we would do so in a manner that glorifies your name. Have mercy upon us this day and let us go in peace for Christ's sake. Amen. Let's stand and sing.
Amen. Well, I have a benediction up here. Let's read it and bless one another. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed, church.